the Senate passes the Respect for Marriage Act, but that is not what the act actually accomplishes. Uh, it is designed to expand regulatory control over largely religious institutions, uh, and uh, the actual premise for the act is also completely false. So the defense, or sorry, excuse me, the Respect for Marriage Act, or HR eight four zero four, it's marketed as a kind of a, a dual pronged uh, kind of equality, kind of egalitarian approach to defend marriage, specifically for interracial and homosexual uh, couples. So the first thing to note about the act is that there is no threat against interracial or homosexual couples. Uh, so we're going to explore that first because if if that is true, which we're going to demonstrate, then the basic question, well, then what is the actual function and purpose of the act if it is not to do the thing that it claims that it's supposed to do? Uh, so this, the really the invented uh, boogeyman or straw man of the uh, some kind of movement against gay marriage or especially interracial marriage, which is, it's absurd that I even say those words, uh, is entirely invented. Uh, the uh, proponents for the bill like to cite uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's opinion uh, in the Dobbs decision uh, in June of 2022 that overturned not just Roe v. Wade, but also Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, which I have a separate podcast on that subject. Uh, but though it's it's very similar, the two circumstances, in the intentional obfuscation that's used. So in his decision, uh, Clarence Thomas didn't attack those decisions. He it drew deserved concern to the substantive due process doctrine that was used to dis- to come to those decisions. So he didn't express any personal dislike for, uh, you know, gay marriage or uh, for the uh, presumed right to contraceptive use when purchased by uh, married couples uh, or to uh, consensual private sexual activity between adults. Uh, But he did reference numerous cases that pertain to those specific things. But again, he didn't say that those cases in themselves, that the conclusion wasn't proper. Uh, it was part of a larger concern he had with substantive due process. And unless the uh, moral relativists out there get too awfully excited about the values and virtues of substantive due process, uh, merely because it sometimes aligns with a favorable outcome, uh, though the road getting there is questionable, uh, substantive due process is best understood in the Dred Scott decision that uh, legalized uh, human chattel slavery in the United States. Uh, so substantive due process is, is not a system by which the courts do great, wonderful, and marvelous things. Uh, it is a dangerous weapon, uh, and largely it is very ideological. So 
event of <laughs> particular note kind of makes this whole defense or, or explanation of his his opinion uh, kind of redundant uh, or unnecessary. Uh, is that Justice Thomas said as much his, himself uh, in his actual decision? He said that the court today declines to disturb substantive due process jurisprudence generally or the doctrine's application in other specific contexts. He then goes on to list those other cases and says that the specific instance here, the Dobbs case, that the court's opinions were unique to abortion. So in his opinion, he excluded all of those other cases, including those that dealt with gay marriage, uh, contraceptive use, uh, and consensual sexual activity. Now, of particular interest, and of course his critics were very quick to seize upon this as some apparent hypocrisy, uh, but Clarence Thomas didn't mention interracial marriage in his opinion, and the reason for that is because interracial marriage is not the same as the others, and it was not decided through substantive due process. So there was no point to mention interracial marriage because it simply didn't fit with the larger uh, discussion there. But of course, uh, Justice Thomas is married to a white woman and has been for a very long time. She is a uh, successful uh, political activist, uh, although against generally uh, the left, which earns her extra ire. Uh, but somehow that was construed as some type of hypocrisy because he, unlike the authors of the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, didn't just automatically assume that race and sexual gender activity type things were synonymous and fungible and you know, mor morally relative either. So there is, was, and continues to be no actual basis for this act that can be logically grounded in fear or concern, at least not genuine fear. Artificial fear, sure, because uh, the left has been beating that drum since the Dobbs decision that next they were going to come after, uh, you know, racial uh, components for some reason. Of course, you know, it always, you know, you mentioned race and it, it, it just strums the emotional propaganda that's been programmed into people for so long. And anything associated then with anything that is racially discriminatory just becomes fruit of the poisonous tree no matter what. So recognizing that the stated purpose of the act was completely unnecessary, that begs the question, well, then what is this act actually going to do? Well, a couple really interesting things. Uh, first, uh, I would describe it as a Trojan horse. Um, Historically, civil rights legislation has been used as a way to expand government regulatory control and power. Yeah, always, there hasn't been a civil rights act passed after, well, the Reconstruction era, really, that didn't have some increase in administrative power and a general increase in the federal government. Now, that's not to say that they're all bad, necessarily, although many were and are, and I guess presumably will be in the future as well. But necessarily, the way that civil rights have been kind of redefined into entitlements or positive freedoms necessitates centralized government growth in order to impose those 
uh, policies on the population. And this bill is no exception. So the first thing that's, that's problematic, uh, despite the flaccid amendments that were proposed, and I don't think at this point they've yet been adopted. Uh, they kind of pretended to give some religious uh, exemptions and protections. In reality, they don't. Uh, one of the weirder things about the amendment and the act generally uh, is that, well, the act itself made no reference to religious freedom. Of course not. But interestingly, even the amendment that was proposed by uh, figures that we would then assume would be receptive to individual civil liberties, uh, like the free exercise of religion, and more importantly, the lack of external imp religious imposition, uh, it's not mentioned anywhere in the original bill. And the amendment structures religious rights in a very odd sense where it names institutions, buildings, churches, locations. It, it pretty much lists every possible thing that could be construed as being in some way religious while completely omitting individual American citizens. So that's strange, uh, right, to, to determine that a particular freedom is not held to individuals, but only to individuals that, say, belong to a certain association with a certain legal classification that can or could not, may or may not be given or rescinded at will by the state. Uh, so essentially the religious rights of individuals, even by the amendment that's supposedly sympathetic to, the, to such things, is subjective to the arbitrary will of the state and more so to unelected bureaucrats in the state. So how that would work, for example. Uh, 501c3 status, which is your tax-exempt status, means that you are defined by the IRS as a charitable organization. So the language of this act would allow the IRS to just decide, perhaps, that if you are a, a any type of organization, whether you be religious or secular, uh, that your ideology or actions run contrary to uh, gay marriage. I'm not going to mention interracial marriage because that's not a thing at all. Never. I mean, it hasn't been since the Democrats finally gave it up. But the IRS can just decide, well, you're no longer charitable because you're withholding from certain groups or populations contrary to the Respect for Marriage Act. So... Once they lose that all-important word charitable, they also lose their 501c3 nonprofit status. Now, this can be applied to schools. This could be applied to religious institutions. Uh, this could also be applied to uh, different types of social services, uh, especially adoption agencies. So what this turns into is a broader assault on the concept of a nuclear family, uh, which Personal opinions and beliefs aside, even even the, the, the science sycophants out there are forced to begrudgingly acknowledge that as of yet, the nuclear family has proven time and time again to be the most effective means of raising children. And as we're learning from the uh, propaganda right now calling for amnesty, uh, lowered birth rates are not a good thing for a civilization. And so while they uh, target the family for destruction uh, through this and similar acts, uh, they also lament the consequences of that destruction and try to package that as an excuse for other 
uh, leftist policies. So what you can see here, too, uh, is this political alignment as well, right? Because uh, Democrat organizations' ideology uh, and associations would benefit from this law to the detriment of organizations that would generally be safely considered uh, to be their political adversaries, uh, either in the Republican or conservative or whatever uh, whatever words you want to use for that. And it's not like this is a new phenomenon. Uh, uh, the IRS was weaponized against uh, the uh, Democratic Party political opponents uh, throughout history, uh, most recently, of course, under the Obama regime, when the IRS under Lois Lerner was used to revoke the 501c3 status of any applicants uh, that had certain trigger words in their title or descriptions. Uh, and, of course, those trigger words were inevitably uh, identifiers for political opposition. Uh, so this is not breaking new territory, and it's not a provocative and, and, and outlandish thing. It's, it's really just, oh, look, they've done this before, and here's this new way they're doing the same thing again. Only now they're doing it through legislation so that they'll have a more, I guess legal, air quotes, uh, justification for doing it. Now, how this is going to pan out, uh, naturally, is that the LGBTQ kind of alphabet militant activism is going to be wrapped up into this. Uh, Although it's not stated in the bill as such, uh, it's not going to be difficult uh, for any LGBTQ transgender, especially type of movement to just wrap themselves into this act. And and in a similar fashion, actually, that the uh, gay rights movement uh, latched itself onto the uh, racially premised civil rights movement. Uh, So the moral uprightness, in most respects, of uh, racial civil rights movements uh, throughout American history were co-opted by uh, homosexual rights, gay rights, and then now they're being co-opted and, and generally usurped uh, by transgender, the transgender movement. Uh, so we're going to see that snowball into that effect should this become law, which unfortunately it appears at this time that it will. Uh, it will not uh, be long until, uh, let's say, a school, uh, even if their school board and the parents determined not to teach transgender ideology, Uh, that that school could be targeted, especially as a private institution, uh, for lawsuits, or I should say additional lawsuits that would be further supported by the language in this act. It also puts together what I wish I could call a slippery slope, uh, but let's just say it sets a dangerous precedent. So the most articulate president in history, Joe Biden, uh, articulated... I think, a respectable enough uh, encapsulation of, of the kind of the philosophical moorings of this act. And he, of course, put these in a tweet because, you know, it's 2022 and people don't really write books or give good speeches. They put out tweets and whatnot. And, of course, he tweeted it, but he didn't write it. And it just has his name next to it and, you know, says I'm president, whatever. So uh, Biden tweeted, love is love. An American should have the right to marry the person they love. So that statement means nothing 
Uh, in fact, it is riddled with its own fallacies and absurdities. But it does align with the act that's currently under under proposal. And it does this by defining marriage as any marriage that is valid in a state where the marriage was entered into, or in the case of a marriage entered into outside any state, if the marriage is valid in the place where the state was, or sorry, the marriage is entered into, it could have been entered into a state. So that's a bunch of gobbledygook kind of applesauce stuff. But what it means is that if I would like to say two people, but I can't. So let's just say any marriage was made official in any state. Every other state would be forced then to recognize that as a legal marriage. So what the act doesn't do is define marriage. In fact, the act doesn't even specifically defend interracial marriage or gay marriage. Instead, it creates this very, very broad pseudo-definition where any state, if any marriage is considered official in any state, it must, through the force of the federal government, be recognized by all states. So where does this get weird? Uh, Well, really quick. Uh, Of course, uh, polygamist uh, groups are very happy about this act. Uh, There is nothing in the language of the act uh, that would actually make any anti-polygamy laws legal. Uh, according to the act, if one state, sorry, Utah, but I'm going to use you because you, you know, your history, let's say Utah legalizes polygamy. Now all states have to recognize polygamy. Uh, let's say a single state, uh, recognizes incestuous marriage. Now all states have to recognize incestuous marriage. And of course, uh, the coup de gras, uh, an adult child marriage. Well, now all states had to recognize an adult to child marriage. So what this act does is it allows uh, deep blue states like California to write the marriage laws for Oklahoma, Texas, and so forth, and vice versa as well. Although in typical kind of political fashion, uh, no such laws would be authored in red areas that would place positions on blue areas. So there, therein lies the real danger here. The act doesn't do any of the things it says it does, and nor is the justification or premise for the act anything legitimate. And although they cite Justice Thomas's opinion, it is interesting to note that the act makes no mention of private consensual sexual activity, uh, nor of the right of married couples to access contraception. I mean, presumably, if the Thomas decision was the moral impetus for this act, well, they forgot half of the things that he addressed in that same decision that were on the same, in the same sentence and on the same line as uh, homosexual marriage. And, of course, they invented out of whole cloth the interracial marriage thing, specifically so they could claim the moral justification of civil rights. So this isn't about what it says it is. It is, as one can generally safely presume in virtually every circumstance, uh, the act is a Trojan horse under the guise of equality and civil rights that at the end of the day uh, will be weaponized for two things. Uh, The assault against political 
opponents by the left, and an ongoing uh, rung in the ladder for cultural or Gramscian Marxism uh, to rot the culture and destroy the family and use that as an avenue uh, to rewrite society. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. The Shane Caraway Show is available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Red Circle, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, visit 1787project.com to learn more.